welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I'm here today with Rick Jones, who is a corporate finance partner at PwC. Nice to see you, Rick. How are you? Very well, thank you, Jeanette. Very good to see you uh, this morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, fantastic. Well, actually, we were saying we've been quite efficient with our diaries because normally it takes months and months to get these things sorted. But here we are. We've managed it. So it's good news. Yeah, the the magic of Christmas. (laughs) Yes. So we are recording this at Christmas, but I know that our conversation is going to be evergreen because it's going to have so much value here that you're going to be able to share. So if you're listening to this in five, ten years time, Rick is still going to have lots of golden nuggets for you of information and advice, so it's good. But yes, we're feeling festive, aren't we, Rick? We're feeling festive. Yeah, we, we are indeed. Look, delighted to, to be here with you now this morning. Um, how can I help you, Jeanette? Oh, well, Rick, you can help me by kicking us off by telling us a little bit about you, really, your story, your journey, how you've ended up at PwC in the lofty position that you're in. So kick off there and then we're just going to have a nice chat, really, all things business and finance. Great. Perfect. I'll, I'll try and do that and I'll make it in a sort of comprehensible, easy, uh, easy way. So I'm a corporate finance partner at PwC and um very particularly, I lead the consumer and leisure um, M&A team here. Now, there's uh, a key question up front, which is what is corporate finance and what is M&A or mergers and acquisitions? And very, very simply, it's helping people, advising them buying or selling their businesses. And those people can either be founders or they can be private owners. They can be corporates or they can be uh, private equity houses. So very much what I do with my experience is I, I help them navigate that process and do it in the best way to help them fulfill their ambitions. Um, that can actually start off with actually thinking about what their objectives are, why are they thinking about this, and then going through the best way to do that and who ultimately the best partner for them would be. Um, it's a, a career that I've navigated to over, over many years. I'm uh, possibly not as young as I look, Jeanette. <laughs> um, and it's uh, it's a hugely, hugely enjoyable one. Um, it's um, something I found possibly through accident rather than by design. Um, and you know, the question then becomes, well, how, how did I uh, find my way uh, through that? Um, very simply, um, when I was uh, a lot younger, I had a couple of things that were there sort of in my uh, in my makeup. Um, on the one hand, um, I was a bit of a bit of a bookworm. So, you know, I liked studying and that was both, you know, reading, but also more, more generally, um, you know, numbers and uh, numerical things. Um, but also at the same time, um, I, uh, I very much enjoyed the team aspects of various things. And very particularly, um, I, uh, I used to play in an orchestra. So, you know, I would, uh, on, my, uh, on my own, if you like, practice on my little trumpet and I'd blow my horn, and yeah, that that was quite good fun. Um, but it was even more fun and even better when I uh, when I came together with other musicians, and actually we performed in the orchestra together. So a combination of um, enjoying doing things with other people and having a slightly sort of, um, I guess you call it sort of slightly sort of uh, bookwormy type side, actually brought me to do something where I could do something that had uh, you know demands in my mind. But also, you know, took me into working uh, in in teams with with other people. Um, so through that, and that is effectively what corporate finance is. You know, it is a um, it is demanding um, of your uh, of, of, of your um, intellect and of your mind and of your creativity. But at the same time, you absolutely cannot do it on your own. You have to be working with other people, and those other people can be uh, clients. They can be other advisors. And they can be your own team internally. And, and that is um, 
effectively what's drawn me um, down, down, that, down this route, Jeanette. Oh, fantastic. Well, listen, we're going to get into a really interesting discussion, Rick, because I think buying, selling businesses, you know, how you go about that, how do you get the best result? What's it like raising finance? I mean, there's so much that we're going to be able to cover. And and as you rightly say, people are at the heart of any business, doesn't matter what business you're in, but maybe people don't always think of a corporate finance as being very much a people-led function and people-led aspect, but it absolutely, absolutely is. And Rick, can I just ask you, you know, in terms of your early career, um, you know, in terms of education and how you sort of got into, um, I guess, the, the area that you're in today, was that a traditional sort of route through school, university, et cetera? How did it play out? Yeah, so for me, um, it was actually quite traditional. So I went to school, I went to university, um, and then I then I joined uh, the work afterwards. But actually, my my degree was in geography, so you know it was a you know it was a non relevant degree, and I was you know really really lucky that I was able to study something I liked and then come into a career that I liked. So I'm um, you know incredibly blessed in that sense. Um, nowadays, though, you know, there are various other routes um, into the profession. And you know, PwC is very good at not just recruiting graduates, but also school leavers and actually really broadening that out to all people to give uh, much more opportunity. So um, that's my route. That was relevant then. And there are different routes um, in now. Yeah, no, I think that's I think it's important to sort of, you know, bust some of these myths because like you say, you did a geography degree, nothing to do with finance at the time, but you've you've you know managed to to be incredibly successful. And and I think you're right. Actually, it's good that today there's more routes into professional services over and above just sort of the traditional route that people probably have a perception is the only option. So if anyone is sort of thinking, oh gosh, or maybe their sons or daughters are thinking about, you know, career options. What a great, what a great route to take because you're in the corporate world of the big corporate world of, of PwC, which is a huge global organization. But you're also working with a whole variety of interesting businesses at different times, aren't you? So you get quite a nice blend of smaller businesses potentially with bigger businesses, don't you, Rick? You've absolutely hit the nail on the head with a, with a number of different points there. Um, yeah, one of them is what is the direct relevance of a degree in geography to a career in finance? Um, and on one level, yeah, there is not. I possibly yeah, knew more about um, the coastline of the Mumbles um, as, a, as a younger man than I did about um, high finance. Um, yeah, now it's probably about 50-50. But um, yeah, what actually a yeah, degree in, in, say, geography gave me was probably two things. One was um, that ability to process um, and interpret information. Um, but the other one was that ability to um, to get on with people in different situations, whether you were you know, measuring the depth of a river or uh, trying to you know, navigate the dusty tones on climate change. Mm-hmm. So you know, really had to get on with people. And you know, that's a core part of not just what I, but what a lot of people in business do. And you know, although the sort of uh, the title, if you like, is uh, corporate finance partner, um, in many ways, um, I think the role is one of sort of behavioural psychologist. It's you know understanding people on both sides of the deal, so buyers and sellers, in order to get the best possible outcome. And it's not always um, you know about the sort of uh, the hard numbers and actually looking at things there. It's actually about navigating some of the um, possibly sort of emotional subtleties, um, and, and that is really at, at the heart of what I do. And, and, and Jeanette, I think it's absolutely the heart of what you do as well. So huge parallels there in, in what we do. And, and in that sense, you know, the uh, whether you have a degree or not, and whether that degree is in geography or accountancy, is slightly sort of here or there. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Follow a passion. You know, do if you can find something that you absolutely love, whether that's from a studies point of view or professionally, whatever it may be, you're gonna you're gonna be so much more successful at it because you know it, it's not a chore, is it? Um, and I just think there are so many, unfortunately, so many people that don't enjoy what they do um, for a job or for a profession or whatever. And life's too short. So if you can find something you love, then that's got to be the way to go, I I believe, anyway. Uh, me, 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 me too. I'm, I'm so lucky that I've always enjoyed what I've done. If I don't, I change it. Um, and, you know, it absolutely, therefore, becomes sort of part of the, the whole of me. Um, it's not to say that I bounce into work every day. 
Um, but, you know, I, I would say definitely more rather than fewer. And uh, I always try and sort of, um, you know, work with a smile on my face as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we've known each other for quite a few years now, Rick, so I can definitely vouch for that. So we always have, you know, interesting, friendly conversations, which is brilliant. Um, So let me just change tack a little bit. So if someone is thinking of selling their business, um, that can seem quite daunting, I think, in particular if you've not done it before. Um, So can you just give us a bit of, you know, a sort of a talk through the process, maybe some tips or things that to be considered when you're at the early stages of deciding to sell your business or maybe not sell it, you're evaluating it because it it, it can be quite overwhelming, I think, Rick, for people. But breaking it down into, you know, manageable chunks, I think, is exactly where the support from you and your team in PwC will give. But maybe just talk us through that. I think that'd be helpful for people listening. Yeah, totally. I shall do. Um, before before I start, though, Jeanette, you've actually got a um, one, one of your previous podcasts was actually about sort of helping people identify how to go through the process. And I would say that is fantastic listening for anyone um, who is thinking of doing that. So um, please, please do listen to that. And um, I think, though, the first point is to really sit down and cold towel objectives. You know, why is it that someone is looking to sell their business? Um, what are they looking to achieve? What does success look like um, on the other side? Um, and part of that may be um, you know, financial. Part of it may be around lifestyle. Part of it may be around um, legacy. So there can be sort of various aspects. But I think really sitting down and thinking about why and what success looks like is um, is something that people really, really should spend time with. I think the, the second part then comes to the how. You know, how are they going to get there? And I think, um, you know, there are a number of people who very successfully can sell businesses um, without an advisor. Um, and, you yeah, know, they do that very well. Um, I would say, but I would say, wouldn't I, that those people are in the minority um, and um, they really should use an advisor and they should work with me. But, <laughs> um, you know, why, why is that? And, um what, 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 how should they go about sort of selecting someone to help with? I think, first of all, it comes to someone who really actually can connect with them, um, with that owner on an individual basis. This is a phenomenally emotional, you know, um, and important decision to make. And sometimes um, it's not all plain sailing. You know, I often say there is no such thing as an A to Z on how to sell your business. Um, you have to navigate via you know, all the Greek letters and then Roman numerals as well. Um, so really having someone who you can connect with and actually understand and quite, quite frankly trust, because some of the advice you will be given during that process isn't necessarily um, the perspective that that individual would have come up with. So they have to you know, trust sort of um, why they're doing that with, with their advisor. Um, so I think if you have that sort of why and the how, you know, the next question becomes the when. Um, and I'd say, you know, spend spend a bit of time thinking about the why. Spend a bit of time thinking about, you know, the preparation and putting all the work in up front. And then almost as part of the uh, the outcome is is then the when. But really, you know, do, do not rush it would be my uh, my final bit of advice there. Yeah, I think that's right, actually, Rick, because, uh, you know, there, there are so many different options available. But if you're not clear on why why you're doing it and how it fits into your broader kind of life purpose, if you like, or, or your business world, you know, very often people might be wanting to dispose of a business so that they can grow another part of their portfolio or they might be wanting to, you know, sort of head towards them, you know, a sort of a retirement phase of their life or whatever, whatever the reasons may be. But I think you're right, actually, rather than rushing into to it spending that time up front and just really getting clear on that um is i think with is is absolutely valid for selling a business but anything to be fair you know we we don't often give ourselves the the luxury of headspace to really think um and i think it's so important that we do um and and rick with with um when you're selling your business um and we'll talk about buy side um later because it is a bit different um Often I always think, and I've done a lot of mergers and acquisitions over the years myself in in my kind of professional life, I think the thing that's often underestimated is the amount of time that it can take to prepare your business for sale properly and how that can be quite distracting 
to the team as well. So there is some sensitivities around that and the expectation of what's involved. So can we talk a little bit around preparing the business for sale and and what's involved with that often? Because I think, again, it's it's it very often is not fully appreciated if you've not done it before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so totally. And, and actually, we could have a whole podcast on this. So, I'll uh, I'll try and give the sort of succinct summaries only. Um, first of all, during a process, and there is a question about how long a process can be, which is a bit like a piece of string. Um, but yeah, during a process, there will be peaks and troughs of demands um, on you and your team's time. So, I think that's the first thing to recognise and, and be be ready for. Um, and some of that um, how is around you know, making sure that the information about the business um, is available both to you as the business owner and the team to make decisions on, but also that it's available and it's in a, it's in a suitable form to be able to share um, with prospective investors. So you know, what, what does that mean? Well, I think, first of all, it needs to be robust. And it needs to be able to stand up to uh, what we call due diligence, which is someone really you know, running their, the rule over your numbers. Um, secondly, you know, while it needs to be fair, you also want to make sure that it's, it's, um, it's reflecting the story that you want to tell about your business. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, then why not? So actually really think about that. So if you have a business and you know, part of the story is around international growth into the, call it the U.S., you know, is that what your business plan is showing? And what is the evidence and what are the steps that you're taking to get there? So I think that's part of the preparation. I think then there's another part, very human part, which is in the right way with the right people on your team, making sure that at the right time, they are informed and are actually on that journey and excited about that journey. Now, it's not going to be everyone. And you do have to be... um mindful of confidentiality but certainly your top team you really want them you know engaged with you and actually all excited and helping you sell this business and you know going back to it for an awful lot of businesses particularly in the hospitality and leisure sector which we know so well yeah. um, it is about the people and the team rather than the assets Mm, yeah, that's right actually and and I think we'll talk about buy side but when you're selling your business what is it you're actually selling? You know, is it a brand? Is it is it the team? Is it a database? Is it you know what is it? Is it a, a, a pathway to growth? Um, whatever that might look like. Is it tech? Is it IP? You know, so actually thinking around around the I suppose the the assets, the hard and the soft assets that that you're actually selling is is worthwhile as well, isn't it? Because then you're putting yourself in the mind of the buyer in terms of okay, well, what what boxes are, are you trying to tick here um, as well? And, and I think that that's really good advice. And one of the things that I think think is often uh, less focused on is the people side of it. And you have touched on it there. But, you know, if you're preparing your business for sale, there's all sorts of questions around succession planning, isn't there? You know, because, again, if you want to exit fully or do you want to stay on in some form of, you know, maybe operational role as a CEO continuing or a chairman or an ed, you know, so actually thinking about the team constructs and, and who's going to be taking the business forward if you are stepping back. How how often do you find, Rick, that that is not fully thought through and that's where you often need to step in and, and kind of help the uh, the vendor with that side of it? Yeah, um, it comes it comes through as well to who are you selling to, Jeanette, and um, quite quite often... You're dealing with quite experienced investors, be they private equity or be they corporate um, investors. And um, this is something that people will be very mindful of on on the buy side as well. Um, So if it's not well thought through at the start, it will need to be pretty quickly because for all the reasons that you articulated, any investor is going to be thinking about the team and the manager and who's running it. So you will need to get there pretty quickly. And different circumstances, you know, there are there are different solutions. And you know, it can be, you know, as blunt as a thank you very much. We don't need you around here. Your your work is done. Through to you're the best things in sliced bread. We've got to make sure you're incentivized and retained because uh, you're you're the person. 
through to something in the middle. And that middle bit of transition and succession is something where you know there is no um yeah there is no hard and fast rule everything can be quite bespoke but actually you know it needs to get there through dialogue actually trust as well Jeanette um so you know that that is an important part of um of building up the sort of transaction um development yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the things that, that I've seen quite a lot over the years is is that's, that's sometimes underestimated and is definitely worthy of consideration for anyone that's thinking along these lines is the emotional connection to your business. So if you've if this has been your baby and you've founded this business and grown it for X number of years, um preparing yourself emotionally if you are actually fully exiting or a change of control, let's say, um, is is a is a whole different ball game. You know, I interviewed a, a gentleman called Neville Wright, and Neville Wright sold his business, Kitty Care, to Morrison's for about seventy million, and you know, very successful. Set this business up, you know, with his wife for years and years, and and he said to me when I interviewed him that the day he sold his business was the worst day of his life. He was so unprepared for the emotional loss, shall we say, of that business. So, yes, everyone thought, oh, fantastic, he sold the business, 70 million, he must be delighted. And actually, he really struggled with what next for himself. And, and you know, he does huge amounts in property and all sorts. He's got loads of interesting stuff. But at that point, it didn't feel like it should have felt, <laughs> I think. So I don't know if you come across that, Rick, as well with, with people that you work with, with your clients ever. I have come across every um, emotion, Jeanette. And I'm, I'm, I'm just being slightly careful because I haven't, I'm not, I'm deliberately not giving specific named examples. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, no, I, I've seen everything I had um, on the one hand, and there are different ways of solving. So on the one hand, I had a, uh, a wonderful client who had built up a uh, a travel business and escorted tours. And as al- almost part of um, his exit, it was done in stages, you know, with a, a private equity house coming in. He kept a significant stake. But as part of that, he brought in the sort of succession CEO and then, you know, at the next transaction, stepped back even further. So you could do that over you know, a gradual process. On the other hand, I had a um, an- another client that was a, a UK UK OTA. Um, they um, had developed their business um, and they took in private equity money. And at that point, the two founders took slightly different routes. One of them you know, very much took a, an exit stage left. Um, and the other one stayed on for a transition period to, to hand over. And now you know, he has also you know, stepped away further. So um, there are there are different ways of doing it, but certainly you know, that moment of you know, waking up on the the Monday morning after after the deal and sort of thinking, you know, what have I done? What do, what do I do now? Um, is is probably quite a common one. Yeah, because it's another phase, isn't it? Another phase of your life, another phase of your your business, um, you know, professional uh, experience as well. So yeah, I think anyone listening for, well, I suppose it's like preparing for change, isn't it? You know, whatever change, um, you know, can sometimes feel daunting and a little bit uncomfortable. So I guess we, uh, we're all trying to get comfortable being uncomfortable, Rick. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with things well, we- I also think it can be part of... Um helping the success of your uh, of your business to the next stage and for for the next part and um yeah there are you know, various different people with different skills some people are very good at founding businesses and entrepreneurs on the other hand people are very good at you know running multi-billion pound businesses um but quite often the two aren't the same yeah same individuals with the same characteristics so recognizing that whether it's uh, the skill set of people whether it's um the need for capital international reach actually as part of the journey of the you know, successful legacy of what people have uh, have got today and I think that's a very positive way um, of, of looking at it yeah. um, and I often say that you know with, with founders yeah they are always the founder there'll be multiple CEOs or CFOs or chairman but yeah there will only ever be one founder so you know that that is um, I think something that people you know can, can take a lot of uh, a lot of pride in yeah, no, that's a good perspective. I, I really like that. And and on the on the buy side, Rick, um, you know, again, you work with all sorts of clients, don't you? You know, private equity, private investors, big corporates, etc. Um, you know, are you seeing at the moment that there's an still a, a strong appetite to buy businesses? Um, given the sort of you know we've had a tough 
few years, obviously post pandemic, and you know we've got lots of you know I guess headwinds um, from an economic point of view at the moment, but equally in x years time you know everything goes in cycles and we may well be facing those situations again but when when the economy is tough and when the market has been difficult in terms of consumer confidence and disposable income etc do you find that there's that you know the volume of deals in terms of interest in buying um is is not as strong or how do you how do you see it at the moment yeah, great, great, great question. And, and as you know, I very particularly focus on you know, the consumer and leisure space and, and yeah. deals in that, which in a sort of post-pandemic sort of cost of living crisis world, you would expect to be you know, very badly uh, impacted. And yeah, you know, I think you can you can look at that on one level and very quickly work yourself up to be a bit of a sort of uh, a doomsayer kind of thing. Um, the reality is uh, is actually more nuanced. Um, and yeah, you know, there are very much still still deals happening. And in fact, last week, um, the day of our um, last week, I had a career first. I actually entered exclusivity on three deals um, on the same day. Wow! And yeah, and that is the first time I've done that in twenty how many years of, of doing this. And yeah, that really just shows, I think, um, that there are are deals happening now. Yeah, I think you then need to sort of scratch the surface a bit and think, well, what are the characteristics of these deals and what why are they happening? Um, and I think the the first element to that is you know, at different times of an economic cycle, um, different people and different investor types will be looking or, or not looking. But candidly, you know, right now, the premium is on sort of resilient growth. Yeah, so there's a point there about which businesses are playing into that theme, and what characteristics um, do they have? And you can you can see that almost across all sort of sub segments of uh, of the consumer and leisure space. So it's not not simply a case of saying um, I'll pick it up. Um, you know, domestic holidays are very resilient, therefore only domestic holiday deals are being done, and there's nothing in international travel. No. There are other parts of international travel that are resilient and businesses that play into that, which mean that deals will get done there as well. So I think it's very much thinking about the businesses and the themes and the, the characteristics of them. And then it's a case of actually thinking about the investors and you know why. Now, right now, um, if we take the sort of if we take two basic business um, investor types, private equity and corporate. Right now, deals in the sector are difficult um, for private equity, in part um, because of the, uh, the the risk appetite for the sector, but actually in larger part because um, you know, the debt and the leverage isn't really available um, in sufficient quantities today. Mm-hmm. So that makes it very difficult for them to compete meaningfully in relation to value, other than by exception. And there are always exceptions. And um, yeah, there was a great deal we were involved in earlier on this year, um, advising a business called Virgin Experience Days um, that we sold to uh, to Exstone. And that the exception there was, you know, a great business with a very strong team, um, fantastic growth both here in the UK and internationally, um, particularly in the US. Um, and that absolutely appealed to Equistone. So um, that'd be an example of, you know, where private equity you know, really, really is interested on the other hand, you've then got the corporates. Now, we are seeing at the moment much more corporate activity as prospective buyers um, for businesses than we have done historically. Um, and I think that that is um, probably due to two characteristics. Um, first of all, you know, it is easier for them to compete um, in processes at the moment. Now, why why is that? Well, by and large, um, while corporates are set up to run their businesses and focus on the you know the areas they are, private equity exists really to raise money and do deals. And that is their whole modus operandi. And therefore, private equity can compete normally um, at speed in a way that corporates cannot. Now, given what I said earlier, that has clearly um, you know, been, been removed. That pressure has been removed a bit, which means that corporates can you know, find the right deals and compete on, you know, time as well as uh, price. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is, you know, in this very different um, landscape that we have now, particularly post-pandemic, a lot of corporates and businesses are thinking about reshaping their portfolios. 
um, to make sure that they are focused in the right place. And that is um, either the right product, the right customers, the right markets or right geographies. Um, and um, that can be either organically or inorganically through um, M&A. So we are seeing quite a lot of uh, corporate uh, activity as buyers. Um, and those buyers um, can be both um, you know, domestic, so in the UK, or indeed you know, international. So um, earlier on this year, there was a, a business called Healthspan that's in the vitamin space. Um, very attractive business, um, great uh, proposition and what it does, hugely appealed to Aukla, which is a large Norwegian listed business. And it appealed to them due to their UK market presence um, and actually what they are doing in relation to subscription for uh, for vitamins. So um, that, that's sort of two different examples showing both private equity and corporate buyers active in the space. And obviously, if we were to speak in a few weeks' time, I'd, I'd tell you about the the others, but I'm not going to tell you about those today. <laughs> we'll have to have you have you back on, Rick, as a you know a, a part two, so we can see what how it all played out. But yeah, I mean, obviously, client confidentiality is is, is at the heart of, of what you guys do, and that, that has to be. But thanks for sharing those examples because it does bring it to life. And I guess I guess the point is that even during tough economic times, there are still opportunities for the right business um, and for the, for the right buyer, depending on how that fits strategically for them. So, you know, we're certainly not in a position where it's all doom and gloom. I mean, I see it, Rick, with our, with our property business, you know, we're looking at our portfolio and thinking, okay, actually next year we see full of opportunities because, you know, prices, the market's been overheated. Prices are starting to come down a little bit. You know, a lot of, a lot of the property investors are getting nervous. Uh, whereas actually for us, we're very confident with our strategy. You know, we're in a good position financially. So it could be a great time to, to sort of supercharge the growth, you know? So I think it very much does depend, doesn't it, on the individual situation of the, of the, the the buyer and and kind of strategically how they see it and also how liquid they are um because you know at the end of the day liquidity is is absolutely critical isn't it for being able to do a deal you know yeah and, and I, but you've hit the nail on the head there with your with your example of your of your business agent because actually what you're able to do is compete with you know, your idea and your strategy and your focus rather than simply cost of capital mm-hmm. um and value so i think that's spot on yeah, absolutely. No, it's that that's great. And and Rick, when it comes to um valuing a business, because you know, there's ultimately a business is I always say a business is worth what someone's prepared to pay for it, right? <laughs> it's the same as same as buying a house. Um, but there's multiple ways to get there, isn't there? You know, in terms of how you value a business. When very often a typical way is EBITDA with a multiple of X applied, you know, that's a very, very typical way to value a business. But and the range can be massive. I mean, I've seen it from my experience in in the travel space. You know, sort of your more traditional businesses might be, you know, sort of six times multiple, something like that, six seven times. Whereas whereas your you know your your sort of your OTA, your tech, your global businesses that you know were probably a less bricks and mortar might be carrying a double digit um, multiple in terms of the valuation. So can you just talk us through a little bit around? the dynamics and the characteristics of of the businesses that tend to get quite high valuations, um, just so that then people can bear that in mind themselves as they're thinking about their own business and possibly wanting to sell in the future. What are some of the things that actually could help nudge that valuation up? Um, I know it's a general question, Rick, but there are some common common themes, I think, aren't there, you could probably pull out? Yeah, it's it, it, it's it, absolutely. So, um, the first thing is, yeah, there are two probably financial metrics, possibly three, that people are you know, really focused on, and that is top line growth, um, its margin, and then its cash flow generation. So, those are the three sort of financial metrics, if you like. And then what you've really got to think about is those are outputs. So, what are what are the inputs? What are you? you know, how are you driving your business to to do that? Um, and in relation to, to growth, it can be the addressable market. So what is it today and what is it going to be in the future? What is um, what is your route to market? What is your customer proposition? How does that compare to others? And then what is the white space? Mm. Um, you know, the margin goes to your pricing power um, and it goes to your cost efficiency. So that's important. And then the cash flow generation effectively goes to your business model, your asset intensity, et cetera. So you take the example there of a more tech-focused business. 
Now, clearly, that um, certainly historically would have had very strong tech top line growth as more people were going online rather than offline. Um, and you were able to reach more customers, the the margin would have been strong. And then because it was asset light, well, yes, there would have been quite a lot of investment um, into um, into people and development, but actually you wouldn't have been owning the assets. So the cash flow generation would have been strong as well. And if you compare that to a um, an asset heavier model, where you know, the top line growth would have been about how are people reaching the market? Is it direct or indirect? The margin would have been you know, much more focused on you know, the marketing cost and depending where you were looking at that, the people. And then the cash flow would have been, you know, posed quite a lot of CapEx, both you know, expansionary and indeed maintenance. So really thinking about sort of each of those and those go into the multiple. But, you know, the multiple is, you know, but one means. And, you know, valuation is, uh, you know, it, it is an art um, rather than a science. And yeah, there are, it is important. There are other parts that go into into that as well. And yeah, you can look at if you're thinking about a financial investor, you know what a um, an LBO model would be, what a private equity um, returns model would be. How what does it look like over a three to four year period? You can look at a, um, a discounted cash flow um, model to see as well. And if you're you know, a listed acquirer. Um, it's actually important to look at your own multiple. And indeed, you know, there may be other metrics that you're measured on, whether it's sort of EPS accretion or you know, dividend cover, et cetera. So there are various different um ways that, to, to look at that. And it comes down to um comes down to you know a, a range, as you say, for negotiation. The, the other point there um is is vendor expectations and quite frankly and yeah, there will be a price sometimes um that, that the owner wants and quite right too and yeah where, where where everything meets it's a beautiful spot and where they don't people just have to uh agree to disagree or find a way to get there over time yeah yeah absolutely i love it it's art it's an art not a science yes indeed and that's what no but sit on a serious note rick that's why having the right people on your team internally and externally in terms of advisors like yourself you know it's important because you want to be able to get the best valuation but you also want to be getting in bed with the right partner don't you as well and and is all of that in the mix plus as well the you know the the, the complicated maths <laughs> that can be behind it um you need the right advice the right support and guidance and and i think that is absolutely critical and and rick can i just talk, sort of talk about your team a little bit because i know that you're incredibly passionate around you know building a high performing team and the culture that you you really instill there just just explain to us what 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 a good High performing team looks like for you at PwC. Yeah, so it's a great question. There's probably sort of two aspects to that. There's the micro level, sort of my direct team and my direct reports, if you like, and then there's the sort of larger PwC universe that I that I that I fit within. Um, but if I start with um, you know the, the the my my sort of corporate finance team here. Um, the first thing is we've really got to answer is you know why are we here you know what we're, we're all in, 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 lucky to to be here we're also lucky that different people in my team have got different skills and actually they could turn up on a Monday morning and do anything and I'm you know, incredibly fortunate that they choose to to come and work with me so it's really working out you know why is that um, so what we've done um, in our team is we've uh, we've created a team charter. And uh, that, that governs sort of why we're here. And it's a set of principles that we all discuss. So it's not top down, but it, you know, we all discussed. And um, people, I think and hope, have really bought into. And it starts with a guiding North Star. So you know, our purpose as a team, and that is you know, to give each of us the best possible experience. And that is simply what we do. And unfortunately, there's nothing there about clients or revenue targets or, you know, or anything there. But it is to give each of us the best possible experience. And we believe that if we do that, then actually the other benefits of commercial success, client satisfaction, repeat business will actually you know, all flow through that. Now, we then go on to, well, that's great as a principle, but actually, how do we get there? What do we need to do? So we have a, a series of um, team norms and behaviours um, that therefore guide us. And part of that, Jeanette, is creating a very non-hierarchical team where everyone feels empowered to take ownership. 
And actually, when things aren't going well, and you know, sometimes they don't go well, everyone is empowered to call it out um, and, and improve things. So, um, and I really hope that if any of my team are listening, um, if they weren't feeling empowered before, they should absolutely feel empowered now. So I think that's uh, that's one part. Um, and I can go and talk about that for a long, long time, Jeanette. But the other part of it is um, is here at PwC. And I think we have um, a, a beautiful culture of empowered flexibility. So yeah, we are a large team. Here in the UK, there are 19,000 um, employees. So it is, it is very, very large. And um, but particularly post-pandemic, but even before then, we've actually had to think about sort of how we all work together. So we have this, uh, this theme called The Deal, and it's about empowered flexibility. So people... You know, recognizing that there are benefits to working together and coming into the office appropriately, you know, can work around that. So, so people need particular you know, times of day off. Is there a particular way of working that works best for some people rather than others? And it's not going to be the same for everybody. With 19,000 people, you've got at least 19,000 different perspectives there. But the beauty is that we're actually trying to welcome and encourage that um, in a way that works for the individual and works for the team and works for the organization. Yeah, brilliant. I love that. Yeah. And that that team charter that you've got and those sort of, you know, that that openness to sort of raise your hand and, and offer an opinion or, or you know, a, 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 an input into a decision, I think is really important. And like you say, you've got the broader context of PwC, the big machine, the big brand behind you. But I always think, you know, in, in my career at TUI in particular, I used to always say, you know, you've got to think global but act local, um, you know, whether that's from a market point of view or from your own team perspective, you know, because one size doesn't fit all. So it's great being part of the big, the big, you know, PwC world, but also you're dealing with individuals and, and your own team within that, aren't you? So getting that right combination, I think, is quite key. Um, and, and you're obviously doing that very well. Well, I, th- I hope so. Um, but you know, th- thank you for saying so. I um, I think it's also important, as you say, these people are individuals. We all do happen to work together today. I uh, I sometimes liken a little bit to uh, the Last Dance. I don't know if you've seen uh, that that Netflix program about Michael Jordan, yeah. where you know, phenomenally successful team for that moment in time. So you know, how did they uh, how did they do that? What are some of the characteristics now? I haven't quite got the analogy you know, directly there, and I'm not for a moment going to say that I'm Michael Jordan or Dennis Rodman or name anyone in my team who could be. But I think there are certain things there. You know, there are different characteristics of different individuals that, on their own, have got positives and negatives. But when they come together, they come together to win. And you know, it is it is game time. And you know, that's what we do as well. So. Um, you know, it'd be, be nice if they made a Netflix documentary about us in the future. But, yeah, uh, yeah who knows? <laughs> hey, listen, who knows? Anything's possible, right? We know that. We know that. Um, and, you know, in terms of diversity and inclusion, Rig, because obviously with a big organisation like that, you know, it's something that I'm really passionate about, you know, whether it's gender diversity or sexual orientation or cultural diversity, etc. You know, how, how important is that in the organisation? Um, oh, amazingly important. And, um, you know, it goes right to the heart of, uh, of who PwC is, actually. And, you know, we have a, uh, we have a corporate purpose, which is uh, building trust in society and solving important problems that goes through everything we do. And I think diversity and inclusion is an incredibly important part of that. But then how does it uh, how does it flow through and how does it work in practice? Well, first of all, you know, here on the floor, if you were to you know, meet the team, you would realise you know, how different um, we all are. You would also, I think, go and actually see how we interact with our clients, who themselves are incredibly different. And you know, that, I think, is beauty. There is, there is no one size fits all. It's something that's you know, really close to my heart as well. We spoke earlier on about you know, my um, my degree in geography and you know, the Mumbles coastline. Well, actually, part of that is also you know social mobility. Um, so making sure that people who haven't necessarily had those same opportunities can have that opportunity to have a career here at PwC. So, um, yeah, Jeanette, you've you've had a really sort of uh, strong note for for us and me there. Mm, yeah, I mean, God, we could we could do a whole whole episode on that alone, can't we, Rick? You know, but it's it, 
it's a it's a well, complex. Well, you know, maybe, maybe what I'd like to do is see if actually I can invite you in to uh, to meet yeah, some some of the people here, so that they can uh, they can benefit from your experience and how you've gone through, and actually really use that as a as a talking point. Yeah, oh, well, I would be happy to. It'd be in my pleasure, Rick. Absolutely, yeah. You know, so um, yes, working class girl done good, and female <laughs> all to boot. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and diversive mindset, entrepreneur as well. Entrepreneur as well, yeah. Corporate, corporate turned entrepreneur. So yeah, I'm a mixed bag. I am Rick. I'm a bag of tricks, as my mother yeah. would say. <laughs> and we, we all we all are when you when you scratch beneath the surface. Absolutely, absolutely. So, listen. I know we're a bit pressed for time, Rick, because I could chat to you all day. Can you um, can you pull pull out a sort of a, a a particular high in your career, but also a time when you've had some challenges? Because I think it's important when we're when we're talking about you know what we do and how the impact we have. It's not all rosy in the garden, you know. There are highs and lows, um, you know. So maybe just just pull out a real highlight or something you're really proud of that stands out for you. But also maybe a time when it was where where it was challenging and you had to sort of dig deep and and really kind of bounce back from from that. Yeah. Well, let, let me start with the uh, let me start with the the challenging moments there. And you know, my 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 career has spun various economic cycles and you know, GFCs and dot-com busts and whatever else. So I've kind of seen it all. Um, there, was a, there was a time back in you know, 2010, 2011, when a lot of the corporate finance work was about uh, restructurings rather than strategic M&A. And uh, I often liken it to, to a moment where when you've done a, a good deal, everyone is high-fiving, whether you're buying or selling. When you've just restructured a business and basically carved up the liabilities, then everyone thinks they've lost. And it's just a question of how much they've lost. So that particular part isn't particularly close to uh, to what I like doing in life. There are other people and other people here who are very, very good at that. But that that's, that would be you know, the challenge for me. Um, on, the, on the highlight... Um, I've been phenomenally lucky over my career to work with different types of organizations, big, small, private, corporate. Um, and I've loved nearly all of it, but it's been about the people and it's been working with people who are phenomenally successful in business and helping them. So whether it's um, the old team at Marston's um, and helping them through pretty much every type of deal that has been for, that they did, whether it's Ian and Steve at Wagamama, you know, helping them, whether it's, um, you know, Alan Johnny, who founded Love Holidays um, and then sold that. And that was an emotional process for all of us. So, um, you know, there's been, been an awful lot, but it's been the people and it's been those um, friendships that transcend the transaction moment that are really, really important. All of these people I'm you know, very much still close to and I'd like to say, you know, friends with. Yeah, that's that's absolutely key. You're right because you know it's never just about you know people say oh it's just it, well it's business you know don't be so emotional. Well, hang on a minute. No, it is actually emotions. It is people. It is relationships. That that's business, you know. And if you think it's not, then you're in the wrong game. <laughs> I exactly. Totally, and that goes back to what we were saying earlier on about the sort of uh, the emotional part and. Um, you know, and that's what makes it you know, so much fun. Um, I think if we uh, if we you know, if we weren't doing that, then I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, absolutely. No business with a heart. I always think that's that's the way to go. But um, and that network that you've created is is phenomenal as well, and it stays with you for years. I mean, I still do business with people that I've known for thirty odd years. You know, from my early career, hoteliers, airlines, whatever it might be. You know, so. Always leave the door open, even if you have to have a difficult conversation. I think do it in the right way because you never know where that person might pop up. And I always think try and treat people in the way that you'd want to be treated yourself, even if it is a difficult situation, because those those relationships stay for a lifetime if you nurture them well. I think that's I think that's great advice. And yeah, even when you've had a difficult moment or a difficult conversation, you know, people aren't generally going out of their way to be difficult so you know the more you can sort of build bridges to to make it better next time if there is a next time the better for you and for them 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. So through your career, Rick, you've had loads of um, amazing experience. I'm sure you've had lots of advice over the years too. So when it comes to advice, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we can choose to do with it as we see fit, um, <laughs> either take it or not take it. So when you look back, Rick, can you think of a, a really good piece of advice that maybe has stayed with you for, for quite a few years or was particularly impactful? Yeah, um, so I'd say it's more of a theme than advice, but I've always from a young age been encouraged to do things that I enjoy, whether that's blowing my trumpet, studying my geography, or finding a career with people that I like. And um, that's always been at the heart of what I've done. Um, so I think that's uh, that's really, really true. And, and Jeanette, if you ever see me not enjoying myself, please call me out and... Uh, tell me to get a grip and uh yeah think hard about what i'm doing <laughs> everyone everyone listening or watching this if you ever see rick not looking grumpy and not enjoying it give him a kick up the backside fantastic i've got permission <laughs> <laughs> no that's great but yeah yeah i mean that is that's that's fantastic that you you know and i think it's a really strong ethos to have um yeah absolutely so the flip side then rick have you ever had any bad advice or advice that you know didn't quite work out as you hoped and you regretted taking mm. so I'm, I'm in a, an environment where you know advice is at the core of you know what I do um and uh therefore there's and I'm in an organization where we're, we're very much about sort of learning and development as well so there's there's advice all, all around me that the whole time I'm one moment where it's been particularly bad um or i yeah, worst bit of advice I've had. I haven't had it yet, actually. So I think all advice is probably given with good intention. And it's then a question of what you do with it. Have I always followed advice in the best possible way? Yeah, no, no I haven't. Um, and yeah, would I sometimes do things differently again? Yes, I would. But I'd say, you know, advice is the gift of the gods. So, you know, take it. Brilliant. Advice is the gift of the gods. Yes. Love it. Fantastic. So, Rick, this podcast is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant, as you know. So when you um, hear that, what does that mean to you? Yeah, it actually ties in with a, a really, really strong theme in our team charter, which is um, take the leap, do it now and be brave. Oh, oh, I love that. Fantastic. Oh, I'm part of your team charter. You see, I'm part of the team already, Rick. Yeah, I may have to edit our wording. I think yours is possibly a bit better. But, you know, it's exactly that. It's doing things differently. It's not doing things the way they were done yesterday just because they were done yesterday. And if you change and you do things to the best of your ability, you can excel. Yeah, amazing. No limits. I love it. Well, Rick, honestly, I've really enjoyed our conversation. We will have to do a part two because I know there's going to be so much more for us to, to dig into next time. But thank you so much for your time. I really genuinely appreciate it. So, yeah, a, take care. A pleasure, Jeanette. I, I've loved it too. Thank you. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.